On this week's Inside Marketing, we'll be taking a look back on the year that was 2022. We've had some very big names on the show this year, so this episode we'll just look back and play some clips from some of those great episodes. And I'll be joined in studio by Rob Kinsa to look back on the year. That's only this week on Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Marketing. As I said in the intro, this is a look back on the year that was 2022 and I'm delighted to be joined by Rob Kinsler from the Irish Times Media Solutions. Good afternoon, Rob. How are you? How's things? Ho, 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 Dave. How are you? Oh, indeed. I'm, I'm not feeling that festive yet, but I think I'll get there soon. It's been a busy, busy year, busy end of the year, but uh, yeah, I'm all right. I'm good. How's business? How are you getting on? How, what was the year like for, for you guys? Was oh, living the dream, Dave. Living the dream. Uh it's hard to believe it's December 12th. Where does the time go? It's been a very strange year, I think. It's a year or two yeah, halves. Yeah, definitely. Jan, I mean, Kieran Cunningham was on just recently. Jan to June was, was, was a great start to the year. Everything looking well. And then the impact with the war in Ukraine, you know, the energy uh, crisis, inflation, everything from fuel to food, the stock markets, the crypto collapse, which we're both down on, I think, aren't we? Uh, yeah, uh, well, try not to look at it. It's been an interesting year, to say the least. Year. Well, here's a good riddance to 2022, and here's to 2023. <laughs> so, um, right, we, we'll crack on, because we're both busy. Well, I'm busy. Um, so, right. what a year What a year it has been, and, and what we're going to do is we're going to have just a look back um, at some of the... And it's hard to pick these now at this stage because we got all the contributors are brilliant on it. So um, we look back on on our favourites from the year that's just gone, and I think it probably has been. You know, even last year we were doing it, we were saying, "God, we got some big guests on." But I think we outdid ourselves this year. I don't know where we go next year, but there was some amount of talent on the show this year, wasn't there? Absolutely, absolutely. And again, um, tip the cap to uh, Peter McPartland, whose idea this was to do the the whole. I'm going to edit that out. There's no way. <laughs> Thanks, I'm Peter. That uh, no, it's been great, and and every year we go, how can we get better? Um, mm. And next can year do? I don't know. No, I don't know, but like we'll get there. We might have we might have some people back on. It might be Rory Sullivan might come back on again. He is. I confirmed that year. economics. Very good. Right. Well, listen. Um, I'm going to start off, and um, I think my my first pick is Alan Jope, and that's for a couple of reasons. Like, for, first of all, I think in terms of jobs, he's probably. Um, like they're all busy people and they're all important people but I don't I, I think he's probably got to be the biggest and most important guest that we've ever had in the show in terms of his, his profile um, like, and also like at the time we talked about purpose he was getting an awful lot of heat from investors at the time and I think um, he's, he's subsequently stood down and it's it's uh, he announced it a couple of weeks ago but he was getting a lot of heat from investors um, and publicly about brand purpose and, and we talked about that and he didn't shy away from that um, but also thirdly like he, like he's not a marketing guy he knows marketing but they're, and they're a marketing company which is one of the reasons why I like them but he's not a marketing guy and I was super impressed with his kind of level of knowledge of marketing because he's the CEO he's running the whole company which is kind of astonishing um so there's also somebody in Dentsu who was instrumental on getting him on the show you know who you are I won't mention you um but thank you for for your help on that one so anyway what we talked about was the importance of brand purpose or purpose generally for Unilever um and also like something that I never really thought about was I thought sustainability cost you money but he says sustainability actually saves you money so um we had a good chat have a listen to these um and yeah he was just brilliant even our own shareholders are asking us the same questions we've been in the news recently with um uh, one of our high high profile shareholders uh, challenging actually if we've gone over the top 
on purpose. Let me begin with the following, uh, which is Unilever is not an NGO. We are not here um, uh, as a bunch of do-gooders. We're here to create value, create value for all of our stakeholders, and that includes our shareholders. We believe that the multi-stakeholder model of capitalism is correct, that when we take care of our employees properly, our team will take care of consumers, our customers, our business partners. When we do the right thing for society, when we do the right thing for the planet, then as a consequence, our shareholders will be preferentially rewarded. So there's a bunch of different uh, subjects, whether it's uh, stakeholder capitalism, sustainable business or purpose. But I just want to start with a reminder that we see purpose not as an end in itself, but as a pathway to superior financial performance. At the highest level, we don't have a business strategy and a sustainability strategy. We have one strategy for Unilever that fully integrates our commitments on sustainability and the business choices that we're making. But then when you bring it down to a brand level, I think the strong view that we have, which I'm surprised how few companies and brands have picked up, is that the walk has to precede the talk. Mm. So Dove can only talk authentically about helping young persons self-esteem because we've helped 60 million young people address the issue. Yeah. Domestics can only talk about fighting the degradation of open sanitation because we put 28 million toilets into uh, people's homes. Lifeboy can only talk about saving lives from preventable disease and washing your hands because we've taught one billion people how to wash their hands properly. Mm. And to pick a topical example, Hellman's can only talk about food waste and helping to fight wood, food waste because A, it fits very naturally with the brand's functional role, which yeah. is Hellman's on, on some leftovers, but we've been taking action to fight food waste. So when a brand starts talking without having any, taken any action, yeah then it is greenwashing, then it is fake, then it is hollow. And you know what? These days, we're going to get found out. That's yeah. what we do. So for me, the absolute mandatory is um, it has to be enduring. Think in 10, 20-year horizons. And action has to precede claims. Let me tell you how we think about it, which is there's an enormous cohort effect here. Um, uh, baby boomers don't really even claim to care about sustainability. And I'm making grand sweeping yeah. generalizations. So of course, there will be exceptions. But what we can measure is that baby boomers don't express interest. Uh, Gen X, which I just creep into by one year, uh, we're worse. We claim that we care about sustainability, but don't change our purchasing behavior at all. Right. Uh, uh, Gen Y, the millennials, um, becoming our core target audience now, by the way, um, are uh, very much interested in sustainability and will change their uh, purchasing behavior towards brands that have a positive social or environmental impact. But not if it involves compromising on per product performance and not if it costs a lot more. And Gen Zennials, the, the, generation, the next generation, it's almost the only thing driving brand preference is the values of the brand. So again, if you take a long view Building sustainability in your business is simply a matter of remaining relevant into the future. Yeah. However, it goes beyond that. And I want to challenge this assumption that it costs money to be sustainable. Think about it. Sustainable, sustainability is often about using less resources. Mm. We believe 
that the sustainability commitments that we've made have saved us over the last eight years a billion euros. That's a billion euros that we can deploy towards growth or into our bottom line through sustainable sourcing. And a lot of it comes from a decision we made very early on energy efficiency and shifting into green electricity. So 100% of Unilever's electricity used around the world now comes from green sources. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've saved an enormous amount of money. Final point, if keeping your brands relevant isn't enough, if saving money isn't enough, good luck trying to attract and employ the best talent in the future if you're not running your business according to the values Mm. that are important to that next generation. So we think there's a really, really strong business case around sustainability. It is not sustainability or profits Mm. it's sustainability as a pathway to superior profits we agree with a very great deal of what the uh, ehrenberg bass institute um promotes uh, my friend byron sharp um advocates for by the way one thing we don't agree with them on is they they're very dismissive of sustainability and purpose but their mathematical modeling of consumer products is very robust And so I do think um, the idea that uh, you invest about half uh, your money on programs that really build brand equity and uh, that the other half goes on uh, things that convert to purchase. What I absolutely reject um, is this idea of the, the funnel, upper funnel, lower funnel. It is a figment of the imagination that's been created by marketers. It's convenient to help us organize our activity systems. Um, but think about your own uh, your own shopping behavior. You know, the idea that you logically march through this uh, funnel oh, yeah. of uh, you know, awareness down to finally uh, uh, purchase and post-purchase is nonsense. Um, we all have different uh, sh- uh, shopper journeys. We follow different journeys for the same purchase at different times. Mm. And I think it's a, it's very liberating, actually, to walk away from the the straitjacket of upper funnel, lower funnel thinking. But I think that there's a sufficient empirical evidence to say, don't let the pendulum swing all the way towards only yeah. short-term, um, commercially driven purchase, uh, uh, close to purchase um, activity. Do make sure that we retain enough money um, in the in the the so-called higher funnel, upper funnel activity. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant um, guest to have on the show. I think, like you, I, I think you know he really stuck out his neck for the brand purpose piece. Yeah. Um, you know, one of which, as you say, the shareholders even questioned uh, his stance on it. But I think he says emphatically that Unilever is not an NGO, yeah. um, and it's there to create value for shareholders. So he is a capitalist after all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he was great. So who who did you go for? Number one for me, I'm going with the professor, the scientist, oh, the, the dark lord the himself, the man himself. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's funny actually. After we recorded uh, Byron Sharp, I met with Chalky Aaron Chalk afterwards, uh, just just for a catch up. And I was telling him we interviewed him earlier on the day, and he was telling me that Mark Ritson actually calls him the Dark Lord. And the funny thing about it was, if you remember the podcast recording on the morning, it was bright, it was fine. But after the hour, an hour and twenty minutes, whatever it was, it got dark, and he's sitting there. <laughs> yeah. It, well, I remember it. I remember it. It was a, what probably one of the most scariest ones I've done. I was a bit 
I was a bit nervous talking to him, but... Yeah, yeah, and I'd been chasing him, actually, from launch date in 2019, so uh, delighted he finally kind of lined up our diaries and he agreed to come on the show two years later. Um, and, you know, I was chatting with you about this earlier last week. You could nearly do a full episode dissecting this one, you know? Mm, yeah. Just there were so many brilliant anecdotes, insights, learnings that you could... And you can hardly, you know, argue against the scientist. No. You know, or he'd set you straight as, as he did yeah, with he you. Did, he did, he did. He schooled me. Yeah, well, look, he, I think he's spiky and contentious, but that's just the nature of the persona. Um, I don't like giving you too many compliments. I know that. People to your face anyway, but the way you handled this one was brilliant. From the get-go, he was very challenging with you on your questioning. I don't know if you remember, there was one instance where you said, I'm going to ask you this question, but I think I know the answer anyway. And he's like, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. do you remember that? Yeah. Really? What am I going to say? What am I going to say then? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you actually did give the answer, so that, that was great. And then he has a pop at you, uh, I think he says, you know, drop the arrogance when he's yeah. chatting about the M&M story. So it's all gold. But anyone that wants to learn more about advertising and marketing should listen to this episode as Byron talks about targeting, segmentation, category growth, activation. You don't activate a human being. Um, <laughs> I thought it was very good distinctiveness. And again, ask the question, is advertising getting worse as the world gets more complicated? So you're going to hear the next couple of clips. That's the fundamental difference. When people talk, when textbooks talk, targeting, uh, sometimes it's about sometimes it's about I'm going to target this group because my existing marketing mix isn't reaching them very well mm-hmm. uh, just expanding your reach and sometimes it's targeting of like no we only want to we only want you know, we only want to sell to you know our fashion store only wants to sell to good looking young women <laughs> yeah and that's excluding and 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 that's the opposite. That, that's that's what we say. That's when targeting goes wrong. And uh, you know, I mean, it's it is a it is a I think it's a very shameful thing that that you have major companies with very clever marketers like Coca Cola, who saw in their own data that like half half the buyers of Diet Coke were men. Yeah. You know, but still they're like, yeah, but still the marketing plan says you know women, so we'll brief the media agency along those lines, like. Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly theory-driven rather than evidence. Category growth is pretty important to you, isn't it? And they're like, oh yes, I want category growth. Right. So, how do categories grow? Uh, and then you know, everyone, it dawns on everyone. Um, when new people start using the category, right? Yeah. So you've got to target people who don't even buy the category yet. Mm. Yeah. Unless want to grow unless you don't want to grow the category and and then it becomes yeah common sense but it's very anti-ROI and things isn't it well I'm going to target people who aren't even buying the category well yeah. if you want category growth uh, yes yeah I mean yeah it, it just it just makes so it's hard to argue with it even and even without getting into you know all the data it's just hard to argue with it because it just makes so much common sense when you think about because um, no luxury brands are slightly different considered purchase. But when you think about CPG brands or or even utilities, a category, like I'm still amazed. I sit in a lot of meetings where, um, whether they believe it or not, a, a lot of clients genuinely think that their product is 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 completely different, um, and that there's a there is some loyalty in there and brand preference, which there could be a little bit of brand preference. But are we kind of fooling ourselves and thinking that there are groups of people that? love our brand and will will well you know stay relatively loyal to it do you think that exists in cpg brands much 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's a big wide world and it's a weird place. There are always a few weird people. Um, yeah. <laughs> every brand has a few people who love them, but not much. Yeah, I saw the other day a senior marketer who said they were partnering with some big media agency to, to produce delight for their customers. And uh, I thought, oh, oh, you know, they sold something like, um, you know, cleaning products or something. Right. You know, something really toothpaste or something yeah, like this, yeah. you know. And I'm, uh, delight is a bit of, slightly like, overstretching. Yeah, Jeez, you know the big brands of the world are big because people um, know them and they're mentally and physically available. They find them very acceptable, and uh, they're able to keep buying them and get on with their lives. Um, you know, was it the biggest selling car in the world by far? Like, oh, it's the biggest success ever is the Toyota Corolla, isn't it? Mm. Um, the Toyota Corolla. You know, no offense to Toyota, brilliantly run company, whatever. It was a very boring car, right? Yeah, yeah. And no one would ever. Well, no, I'm not wrong. And there will be people who get their new Toyota Corolla and they're quite delighted, but it's not a Maserati or anything. No. Um, but I think they've sold 50 million cars. Right, yeah. Of one yeah. yeah, no, true. Um, there's volume in being in, in, in the middle, in the masses, all right. People love being, love being loyal because they've got busy lives and they want to get on with them. Uh, but they really, brands really matter a lot to be, and, and we don't need it. That's a great news for marketers. That is great liberating news. You do not need to get your customers to have a religious hmm. zeal for you. News, because, you know, like if you actually, you know, if you sobered up and looked at it, and went, well, we've only got, you know, fleeting seconds of attention with some advertising. Mm -hmm. How are we going to do that? We're not allowed to inject them with chemicals or put them through hypnosis or so, you know, really, how are we going to do it? Yeah. Yeah. It is as you don't do. Great. Excellent. Yeah. I suppose, yeah, it is liberating when you think you don't have to do it. Because, I mean, it's not so much talked about anymore, but there was, you know, pillars of comms about trying to build advocacy and loyalty and stuff like that. It's not, it's not, re we don't see it that much anymore. I think there's been, and it's probably due to um, the work you've done. You need to think about there's some like so if you're a utility there are most most of the time no one thinks about us at all mm -hmm. that's a challenge because when they do come to think about us when they do into the category they do not do a lot of searching especially if they're able to use their memory and think of one or two so the great challenge is to get into their heads and be that one or two and then the other work we do is about catching people when they fall. So maybe people look at two brands, which they do for a lot of, two brands is very common for things like automobiles, insurance, like a whole lot of people only look at one, a few people look at three, four, whatever, but the average bring about two. Mm -hmm. That means we'll probably get about 50% of those. And we do work to try to get a bit more than 50%. Right, so the two things we do in marketing, one is to get mental availability, get in people's heads who aren't even there, yeah. and the other thing is to catch our fair share of people who are who are falling. And in that we have, we're on shelf, we do Google, so, you know, we paid search. Um, those are the two things we do. Now, and this gets wrong, that last, that second one, the catching people when they fall, gets given weird titles like activation. Right, yeah. <laughs> You're not activating anyone, okay? You're not activating anyone. Someone goes, I'm going to buy a lawnmower. Now, let me see what brands of lawnmower. You have not activated them. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if no one's in the market for a lawnmower, there's just no nothing you can do. <laughs> True. So you're catching people when they're falling, and you want to, yeah, obviously, if someone does actually turn up at your car dealership, you want the experience to be lovely, and for you to have a really good chance of of getting them. But the biggest driver of your sales performance is not that stuff. It's it's actually that people do turn up at your car dealership. Now, you, you mentioned distinctiveness a second ago. Like a couple of years ago, oh, like as an industry, we were obsessed with USPs and that kind of stuff. Well, they don't really exist that much anymore, but a differentiated benefit and this idea that brands had to be truly different, right? And, and that, that's pretty hard to do because, you know, everything can be copied now or, or replicated. You can, create, you can create a difference in people's minds quite easily, but that function or an actual real difference in taste or something, or... or product utility it's not it's it's pretty hard to do so well, your point is we should focus more on distinctiveness not differentiating so yeah can you just no no, no, di- no, no, no my, my point is uh, if you're the marketing department you have virtually no control over differentiation right right i mean yeah. it you know drop the arrogance you do not right differentiation is big stuff like the first bank to launch atms or yeah. You know, an internet service provider that's double the speed, or you know, and that does not come from marketing. No, right? and that's great when it's there, and you should shout it to the world. But it will come and it will go. Um, but your job is building brands, yeah, over hopefully 100, 200 years. And that is about branding, which is looking like you and building mental and physical availability. This idea that marketing somehow, you know, mm. banks would, right? They would. They would come to advertising agencies, wouldn't they? And they'd say, you know, you need to differentiate us. It's mm. like, come on, really? Is your interest rate going to No, you're going to have, do you have credit cards? Oh, right, like the others, yeah. And you, what is it going to be? Oh, well, we're going to be more friendly. Really? Yeah, are you? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you gonna really? Are you? Are you gonna? Mm. Well, I hope so. We've got these consultants in. They're gonna train our staff. We're gonna be more friendly. Mm, good luck with that. You think any other banks aren't trying to be friendly too? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But we need to. I mean, I think we get too wrapped up in our categories. Uh, you know, and we forget that other people just say, "You're a soap. You're a, you know, you're a detergent. Yeah. You're chocolate." Ex- yeah, uh, but some of the brands of the world are extremely distinctive. You know, M and M's at Mars. Wow. Mm. Wow. Sometimes some person in an agency said, "Let's create these characters." Wow. You know, multi-billion-dollar brand. Brand purpose, right? It's a hot topic. Lots. There's lot. Uh, now, don't don't kill me. This is not my data. So, I, I, but there's a bit of data I've seen. There's lots of data correlating purpose with profits companies who are purposeful with profits i've I, i've seen some things um articles and some contributors think uh, brand purpose is nonsense i had alan jope on a couple of episodes ago and he's big on purpose right he go, he's saying brands that don't have a purpose in within unilever will be will be done away with over a while um and I, I you know i think i can see both sides if a company has a genuine purpose genuinely it's not a marketing department thing if the company really has a purpose then i think it works but if it's marketing led it's it's kind of tail wagging the dog what's your view on purpose and 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 even broadly brands weighing in on political issues do you think it's a good thing or do you think it's kind of well a waste of money and shameless promotional tailgating on culture if you will what do you what do you think 
Well, I'm a scientist, so what I think doesn't really matter, okay? It's about what evidence there is. And uh, it is embarrassing, I think, for our discipline, and it's embarrassing for some senior CEOs, that they have very little evidence. They are going on beliefs and uh, and really some astonishingly sloppy thinking. Uh, so, I mean... Was it, I loved that there was an investor recently who called out. Who did they call? Actually, I think they called out. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was Unilever. Sounds a joke. Yeah. Like, you, you've done a whole big sweatshop workshop consults, and they try to work out what the purpose is. It's like a 150-year-old brand. I think people know what the purpose of it is. It's to. It's to. Yeah. It's to what it tastes like, right? Uh, and I. I, <laughs> I mean, seriously, this this is. We're drinking our own Kool-Aid and becoming religious. Um, but look, there, there are empirical claims, like if a brand does something more purpose. So let's define purpose. Purpose is when a brand does something for the world that is beyond, obviously beyond the functional benefits that it gives, right? So buy this brand of water and we'll also don't build some wells in Africa or something, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Or buy this brand of insurance and we'll support this sports team is also exactly yeah. falls into that and now we can ask empirical questions like do people care about that does do they pay more does it make them repeat purchase more uh and so we've got a project in the institute looking at these empirical claims and looking at the evidence for them um so yeah i'll speak mindly for someone like alan that is embarrassing actually as a ceo of a big corporation to just make statements like that when actually he hasn't really got any evidence Do you think marketing has gotten worse in the last 20 years, like advertising? I know it's harder to reach people through kind of traditional, like everybody at the same time, like the television model, because, you know, we tend to be consuming things at different times. So it is harder to kind of build significant mass audience reach now at the moment. So is advertising just, Is it, do you think it's it's kind of, it's gotten worse? It's just not culturally as relevant. There was famous campaigns, talked to John Hegarty a while ago, about, about campaigns that were... Mm. You know, just really impacted culture, got people talking, created, um, you know, mental availability, created fame for, for companies. That, and they were liked, and they were well talked about, and they just, you know, they got on people's radar. There's not so many of them anymore. Do you think that, is this a, a, a sophisticated, smart consumer who's able to, you know, we're very sophisticated, we, we don't buy advertising anymore because we're, we're so, you know, we know what nasty advertising is trying to do? Or is it just the fact that, you know, Orlando, Woodsworth says that it, because it doesn't connect as much anymore with right brain, hem, right hemisphere brain cues, it's just the advertising's worse. What, what's your view on it? Is it is it getting worse? And are you worried about the advertising as a profession as as, a, as an industry? Well, on a on a positive note, you know, the scientific revolution started for marketing, so that's good. You know, books like How Brands Grow, like you know, any marketing could spend thirty bucks and buy you know a book like How Brands Grow. You couldn't do that when I started in the industry. Well, you know, you had all textbooks like Kotler or you had mm. interesting, fun textbooks like Reason Trout, but, you know, they were <laughs> weren't really – they were just entertaining. So that's a positive thing. But, yeah, it has got harder for marketers because they – they used to have a few – well, TV, right? TV used to be mm -hmm. a very big – but then lots of the other things. I mean, outdoor hasn't changed. Mm. I mean, it's better. We've got digital boards and things. So it hasn't changed at, at all. Uh, print has. Yeah, print has sort of changed. Directory advertising has gone, but we yeah. replaced by search. 
Um, so I would say maybe the world's got a bit complicated, a bit more complicated, and marketers were never very well trained, right? Yeah. So even if they're putting bucket loads of money into TV, they knew nothing about it virtually. Uh, Absolutely nothing about it. If I said to a marketer, so, you know, how many people on a big rating TV program, right? You've got a 10 million audience there. Next week, you'll have an audience of about how much? I mean, even some people didn't even know the answer to that. And the answer is about 10 million. Ratings are very stable. Yeah. And you go, well, how many of the people who were there last week will be here this week? What's the repeat rate? Yeah. We played the ad. People didn't know that. Yeah, we did know that. Right? So mm. people were spending huge amounts of money and didn't really know about it. And then now, when it gets more complicated, so I look, marketers just need to get better educated because we can still do all the same things we were doing before. Uh, we don't need to go, I can't invest in creativity anymore. I'll, I'll just give all my money to, I'll give all my money to the sales activation team. Yeah. I'll do it all in store online and basically let's close down the, let's close down the advertising department. Mm. We do not need that. No. Yeah, Byron, um, as I say, yeah, it was, I was ner- I was nervous going into it, and then normally I say, but I but I needn't have been, and I, I was right to be nervous in this instance because. But he's brilliant because, as you say, you get so many. I think sometimes people are a bit careful about what they say, and he just comes on and says it like it is. He had a pop at Diet Coke for you know ignoring the fact right, that yeah. men drink Diet Coke, and but he also, which I think sometimes get lost. He talks an awful lot of sense. Um, you know, he 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 he, he talks. It still stands up what he wrote about, you know, the book is 13 years old. Um, and it's obvious in hindsight, as, as kind of he said to me, everything's obvious in hindsight, but just a lot of, a lot of, th- and how liberating it is for brands to not have to worry about people loving them, you know, to, to free yourself from those shackles. So, yeah, he was great. Um, and I think I, I learned a bit from speaking to him, but yeah, thanks. I, I, I wasn't, I was happy we got him, but then <laughs> nervous. So I wasn't really thanking you until it was done. Um and we move on. So my next pick is another, what can only be described as another heavyweight from the world of advertising and is the one and only Sir Martin Sorrell. Now, he's a scary man to interview at the best of times, I'll tell you that. Um, you're kind of someone that you look at him even if you're not in the room. You just look at videos of him and you get a bit intimidated and scary this. by him. I love this. The glint in his eye. You don't know this, but off camera I'd said to him, listen, you're free reign here. Go with this lad. Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, he did. Um and like again to give him his dues like he was in the middle of of a a, a fairly significant crisis at the time because I, we did a pre-call with him on a on a Wednesday um and then we were recording next week and then on the Sunday the Sunday times did a big piece about um S4 capital and you know delayed company accounts mm-hmm. and yeah. it was a huge a really bad piece and effectively about 30% of of the company valuation was was written off because delayed accounts now when I was chatting to him um you know, delaying your company accounts of filing of the returns, it, it's not an indication that anything wrong has happened. But what it does is it, it spooks investors. So that was a really bad time for him. And he even said it on the podcast. He said, uh, you certainly pick your timing. And I said, you know, we recorded last week. But as I said to him, it's not my fault. But um, the, the one actually, the, 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 the comment on Agile, because the pre, the pre, oh, yeah. uh, he was, you were, you were on about, yeah, those big holding groups are getting more Agile now. And, and we were going, right, let's go. And he, go, and he goes, oh, I'm not ready I'm now. I'm not ready now to do it. <laughs> and he goes, you're not very Agile, eh? Agile, weren't you? I know. Yeah, I know. He's quick and he and he was, but again, in fairness to him, I mean, he would have had a ton of investor calls um, on that Monday and Tuesday. Well, I was thinking, yeah, we were doing it on the Monday, and 
I was fully expecting him to cancel, but he didn't, so fair play to him. And actually, you know, I did about 25 minutes and then he says, I have to go and take a call. So I thought that was it, but he said, hold on and I'll come back, which he did. So uh, as you might expect, like we debated quite a lot about a few things. We talked about new agency models. We talked about, you know, how we can measure more things now. But we, we clashed on a couple of things as well, just in terms of how creative you can be in two seconds. So have a listen to this. The fourth principle is around a unitary structure, one PL. Mm-hmm. And I think it really hasn't. I mean, your own your own um, operation is still very siloed. They they and you know, when you when you bring companies in with an earnout model, which might span three, four, or five years, it's only natural that people are focused mm-hmm. on uh, on their vertical. And not the organisation as whole. So um, I, I think the answer to your question is this: is that until those six or seven companies become one company yeah. truly, one brand truly, and I think Densu, for example, does talk about one Densu. Mm, yeah. But but you don't have you know Densu is split. I think it's run internationally. You have a CEO international, and then Japan is separate. Mm, yeah. Uh, so, you, yeah, you, you, have there, you, have there. you have two verticals there, and then within international, you have several. You have several different brands. Yeah, no, I accept that in terms of that 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 view of um, collaboration. Um, I, I want to ask you because this is a a sticky one to a degree in terms of just the, the industry. Like I, I spoke to Rory Sullivan before, and he says the problem with advertising is it's a probabilistic business that has to. Um, survive in a deterministic business culture so there's this thing and what he meant by that was that there's a lot of that sounds very fancy what does it mean well what he means is that there's a a certain amount of good fortune that comes with advertising and you can't you can't predict or model it effectively as effectively as somebody with a finance background would would want you to do so what he kind of means that a lot of people now at the the helm of companies are finance backgrounds and they they don't really get the good fortune or the the overexposure of, of greater surface area you to look there's a certain amount of luck involved in advertising but you just can't identify or model where it's going to come out that sounds to me as a, a bit of a cheap shot well i mean the, we do the industry does like to create this kind of bet noir of the, of the big bad finance well, they like, guy they, they, like, they like to keep create a sort of magical aura around of creativity it. and the sad thing for rory which probably has to come to terms with is that we can't we do have access to more deterministic um, mm. data, we do have access. I mean, you know, it's a, it reminds me a little bit of the argument that you hear from uh, luminary creatives that you know data is the death of creativity. Yeah, yeah. You know that that by definition they have some sort of intuitive feel that enables them to to overcome this deterministic. Um, probabilistic yeah. dichotomy or, or problem. And I and I I think that it fails to understand that the world has changed. I love some of the things you're doing, and I heard you talking a little while ago about two second creatives for L'Oreal. Um, now, in a in a Byron Sharp world, because that's an established brand, that's 
that's absolutely fine. It's probably all you need. But, you know, when you think about, and again, I don't want to be being too snobbery about creative here, but like when you think of it in a John Hegarty world, you think about what, well, how much impact can we, how, how creative can you be in two seconds? So with that in mind, do you, when you think about your business, well, S4 Capital. That was for L'Oreal and creative enough to take a product to market leadership within a few months. I mean, it's an interesting case because Facebook, at that time called Facebook, said that women on average, and this was in Italy, spent uh, just a little bit less than two seconds on a post. So instead of trying to create a TV commercial, mm. uh, which takes about three months to produce or two months to produce, uh, shorter now, but still takes a long time to do, brief to the agency, arguing over the brief, changing the brief, taking, you know, we, we reacted very quickly to it and created digital ads that, that were two second ads. Mm. That doesn't, I mean, if you can come up, talk about creativity, if you can come up with a creative solution to a problem that gets market leadership, um, by doing that, what's wrong with that? No. I, I don't, well, I mean, it, it, I mean, the implication is it's not, it, it's not the, the, the right thing. I mean, in a world where, which is always on, you know, instead of TV by appointment, you know, it's 24-7 always on. Uh, and, you, you know, you, you, can, you can choose as the consumer when you consume something. It's not some controller at the BBC who, who, who determines that, a programs controller. I mean, I just think it's a... A different it, it's sort of it's almost luddite really isn't it i mean it's almost neanderthal in terms of thinking it life has changed yeah and For- and, and we, what we thought was right you know 10 15 20 25 years ago may not be right in 10 15 or 20 so it's it's, a, it's an unwillingness to change it's an unwillingness to accept oh. that there's a new order okay and the, the order that you dominated, that these people are talking about, is no longer an order that is dominated in that fashion. It's dominated in a different way. Okay, I I accept that, but just to to play devil's advocate, if you there's only so much you can do in. So if you take say there's production or or creative yeah, like or ideas business, may, right? So let, 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 let maybe, me. Maybe Dave, that people have changed. Okay, if you take Skoda, for example, because I had a guy on from Fallon, and Skoda was in a position where, it, it like, the cars were actually okay, but they had a huge brand perception problem. To, like, his brief was, you know, you got kids, the, the guy was saying, kids are crying in the showrooms because their parents are going to buy a Skoda. So they had a big job doing it. It was a big idea that, that drove that campaign, which would have been really hard to do in, in two seconds because it, it, it probably, the two-second <laughs> model, relies on familiarity and predisposition. No, but that doesn't sort of um, deny the importance or undermine the significance of what happened in that picture. Instance, mm. like women spend up to two seconds on a post. Activation of that or response to that was to create a piece of creative which had impact in, in that period of time. Now, it could, you, it could be that you might produce a 15-second or 30-second or 60-second TV or five-minute mm-hmm. TV. Sure, might have done the same. Doubtful, but you know, it may be. Look, it may be that attention spans have changed. Mm. It may be they are 
shorter today than they were before. And we know, and we know that they are. Like, there's lots of evidence in that one that they, they definitely have. Right. Okay, we, uh, okay, we, we'll, we'll, we won't agree to disagree, but I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you that. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, the one and only Sir Martin Sorrell. So, um, yeah, we'll move on just because I don't want this episode to be too long. But anyway, my my third pick is the one and only Bob Hoffman, the ad contrarian himself. Like he was brilliant, and I was saying that in all of them, he was brilliant. He genuinely doesn't care what people think, um, and as he said, he's not afraid to call bullshit in some of the things that the industry. I think we get terribly excited about things in the industry, and he's and he's never afraid to to call bullshit on that. Um, and we had a really good chat about first of all his background and how he got into advertising, and you know, trying to work as a CEO and a creative director in a, in a industry that you've called out as being full of shit. That was quite tricky. So we chatted about that. We chatted about a lot of things. We chatted about fame, chatted about Elon Musk. Um, but in the clips I'm going to play now, he talked a lot about how surveillance marketing is really, really dangerous and it's getting out of control. And the fact that the, the ad industry is an industry, as he says, without principles. So check it out. First important thing that advertising does is create fame. Now, we in the uh, marketing world, we, you know, that's too simple for us. We need to complicate the shit out of everything. Mm. So we invent all kinds of reasons for advertising that this, and we have to do it this way. And we ignore the most important thing, and that is that it makes you famous. Mm. And, um, do, uh, you know, your, your, the second part of your question is, does it make us does it make you famous now in the same way it did years ago? The answer is no, mm. because there are so many different media options to try and achieve fame that uh, there are so many media options for achieving fame that it's very hard. And there are very few media that reach huge numbers of people anymore like we able like we used to be able to do on television mm. so um creating fame these days is more difficult it's still the most important thing we do right but it's more difficult to do it now than it was mm. yeah and i guess that's um like fame for, for brands but i want to talk about fame in in, in a slightly different context so you know Companies yeah. who use their 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 figurehead, their CEOs, as, as as in a way that kind of they they become the embodiment of that company, like like Richard Branson at Virgin and and Steve Jobs famously did at, at Apple, where these people, you know, they are the brand ultimately, and and it's a brilliant thing because if if they if they are really charismatic and and they become media darlings, it gets loads of free exposure for them. So, um, you know, Steve Jobs, I think you were a fan of Apple. I've read that before and, and you like Steve Jobs. I want to ask you about kind of the, the modern day, I don't know if it's fair to say equivalent, but like, you know, it's a figurehead, a company figurehead who it takes all the, the media spotlight, Elon Musk. So I want to just get your, get your yeah. point of view on him. Um, now, it seems to be, yeah. I don't know, I look at this thing and I go, he talks about things, he can manipulate the market, the price of things, and no one seems to kind of care what he can do. He can talk things up, talk stock up or down. He says things like, should I offload some Tesla shares? seems to be, like, I don't even know how ethical this is. But what's your opinion on him um, as, as a figurehead in, in a kind of akin to a jobs? And also then the, 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 the Twitter, I don't know if it's a stunt or whatever, like, was he just being rash? Did he just do this for his ego? I mean, say he was going to buy them at a massively overinflated price. Now he wants to backpedal out of that and he's looked like he's going to be sued for a, a billion. What do you think of him? Um, what do you think of that deal? 
I think he overstepped his boundaries. I think he, he um, you know, he was so successful in so many things that he thought he could do everything. And I think, as you say, the Twitter thing was just an ego move on his part. And uh, I think it backfired on him. And it didn't just backfire in a business sense. It backfired in the sense of the public's understanding of who he was and what he stood for. I think he's done himself a lot of personal harm. His reputation has has um, gone through a lot of personal harm, I think. And I think he's, uh, in his effort to back out of the deal, I think he's acting irresponsibly, and I think he's acting in a way that uh, lacks integrity. I mm. mean, he, he, he went into this thing. Um, he, ha he had the opportunity to do due diligence and he and he refused to do that and now he wants to do due diligence in retrospect mm. and you know he's he's come up with this uh, in my opinion a phony idea about uh you know that uh the his excuses that fake um accounts and fake uh uh, people are are over five percent of of Twitter's now. Come on, this guy is one of the smartest tech guys in the world. Mm. He knows that there's nothing on the internet that's only five percent bullshit. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you know, the the internet is at least twenty percent bullshit in anything you want to talk about or look at, and he knows that. Mm. So th this idea that he's uh, all shocked and upset because. Uh, there's more than 5% phony accounts on Twitter. I don't buy that for a second. I think that's a, just an excuse because he made a bad deal and he wants to get out of it. The online media, online brands, online websites uh, follow us everywhere we go online. They keep track of everything we say, everything we do, everywhere we go. They know where we are at any particular point. They collect this information. They have secret files on us. They sell this information to third parties. They share this information with third parties. And it's very dangerous and damaging both to individuals and to society as a whole. People say, well, I have nothing to hide. I don't care. I have yeah. nothing to hide. Well, go to any authoritarian regime in history, and everyone thought they had nothing to hide until they were thrown into jail and executed. Mm. Then they found out they had things to hide that they didn't know yeah. they had to hide. And that's what's happening now in the U.S. with this abortion stuff. Yeah. Women who did the, the, the most innocent searches online for to find out about uh, family planning, are now are now capable of being targeted by the police. Right, it's very dangerous. Yeah. <clears throat> it really needs to stop. I heard sure. you, I heard you before, and you say that there's two types of people who never learn lessons or they never progress, <laughs> and it's golfers and ad people, right? So, <laughs> we've, right. we've touched on some of this before. Like, why are yeah. we just so? But like we've become more professional. I think years ago was kind of like the, the Don Draper type of characters, and it, you know it was kind of gut feel, and you know we become more professional. There was a lot of drinking involved. Even even when I started in the industry twenty five years ago, it was far more of a drinking culture, and the, the agency, you, your social life revolved around the agency. That doesn't really happen that much anymore. So 
we're more professional, which is a good thing. But yeah, we 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 just don't seem to be able to learn. There isn't a body of of kind of material to draw on. We don't respect the past masters. We we don't even the, the work you talked about, like. I've read Orlando, Orlando Woods' work, um, Karen Nelson Field's work, Byron Sharp's work. There's a, there's a lot. I've even been out in Field. They've done a great service to advertising. So we, we have a lot of... There, there's a curriculum there that that we, we I don't know. We, like, should we should we have a, a universal marketing curriculum whereby we should all um, kind of sign up to a code of standards that you can't be hiring people I don't know what they're teaching them in, in, in school I did a, a degree in marketing 25 years ago I can't remember what I learned I don't know it's probably <laughs> useless but like why are why are we so bad at this and, what, and, and should we do more to create like at least everybody has to read these books there's 20 books everyone's had to read them yeah, the the problem is we're an industry without principles. You know, most most endeavors there are principles. If you're like, um, okay, medicine has the uh, germ theory of disease, mm. and biology has uh, natural selection, and uh, you know, astronomy has gravitation, and these are principles that explain why mm-hmm. things. Are. I don't know what the principles are in the advertising industry. I don't think we have any. I don't think we agree on anything. The yeah. same things we were arguing about when I got into the advertising business 100 years ago, we're still arguing about today. We, we haven't developed any principles that um, everyone agrees on. Mm. And, and, that, and that is not, you know, that's not a, that, that, that's a free-for-all. Mm. That, 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 that's not a body of knowledge. That's just a free-for-all where everyone has a different opinion and we can't relate to, to, to any specific principles about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Yeah, that was a brilliant, brilliant episode. Um, you know, Bob's all about creating fame. And actually, I think the Wednesday after I had a meeting with the Harvey Norman CEO, Tim Hannon, Tim Hannon, and he was just chatting, you know, about I read something the weekend, actually it was inside marketing and about creating fame. He says, that's what we want to do. Mm. So it was great to actually, you know, hear that, you know, CEO of a big, big, big electrical goods company was, um, you know, trying to replicate what he'd heard on the show. And it was just another great episode. So well done. I'm now going to go on to my one. Um, and look, there was a lot of great episodes. We had some really interesting people this year, the likes of Michelle Spillane, Paddy Power, Bruce Daisley, Viv Chambers, Bricolage. I loved that episode. Mm, Ian Maxwell's, yeah, yeah. Ian Maxwell's was very, very good on programmatic. The Appian was very good. And we also had the returning Kieran O'Kane. But in the interest of time, my next favourite was the brilliant Karen Nelson Field. Uh, because again, the body of work she's published is very important to our industry. And Dave, you pointed out that it's a great time to be working marketing with the evidence-based papers and books on effectiveness. Mm. And Karen's book on the attention economy is another great example of this. So you're going to hear me talking, you're going to hear Karen talking about attention, performance marketing, ad effectiveness, advertising being complicated, mental availability, the importance of context and how procurement departments can be the enemy. That sounds like the whole episode. This is just the best of, you know. <laughs> You've got to get the memo. It was great. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, she was great. So, right, let, let's roll with those clips. I mean, it's funny because I've only just recently written a paper about the concept of attention science versus attention, you know, attention case evidence. Mm. And, and, and what I see, because attention's a land grab at the moment, I mean, what I see in the industry is so much bias around their results um, that it's um, 
you know, don't you know, advertisers don't really know what they're getting. So, so part of the book was to sort of say, actually, make sure that if you are going to move into something new in the measurement space, that there are controls put in place that really highlight the true influence of exposure. So that's kind of what that chapter is about. I mean, mm. it comes from my background, you know, where we're super, super fussy about biases, both from a sample perspective and, you know, outcomes. And, you know, we're, we're very much into replication. And, you know, so so that's what that chapter is about. Mm. Yeah, because as I say, it was um, <coughs> it was fascinating and um yeah, well, there's lots in the book that was fascinating, but um, and something there's a few things in the book that might make uncomfortable reading for um, people who are performance specialists or experts or, or kind of build their life around performance marketing. Um, but one of the one of the things that you point out is that we we now like to think that advertising is quite persuasive and is quite immediate, and yet, like the reality is, we know there's more subtle. It takes it takes time to evolve. It takes time to play out, and like it's really difficult to measure properly, right? You know, when you when you think about the longer term. So advertising always worked in that way. But you say in, in, in the book that, you know, our ability to interpret reasons for success now ha- have, have developed. So can you talk to me about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, the concept um, that advertising is more of a weak force than a strong force is not my work. That comes from early sort of Andrew Ehrenberg principles. Um, but, you know, he he found over lots of sets of data that actually advertising is there to nudge your existing propensities. And what that means is you're more likely, you know, so, so if you advertise at a point when someone is in the market to buy and they're close to the purchase occasion, advertising will have a greater effect than if you try and sort of hit them over the head with a hammer and persuade them that they need this particular thing, which is most likely they don't. So advertising is less likely about persuasiveness and more likely about reinforcing that they need that category at that moment in time. Um, So that's kind of what that piece is Mm. about. And, you know, if I think about, if I translate that, I mean, I wrote this book two and a half years ago and, you know, our business, but also the attention ecosystems moved along so far. But even in the last two and a half years of all the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of uh, data points that we've collected, um, we can see even with attention that advertising doesn't always move the needle. And that's often to do with, you know, the brand isn't present or mm. early enough or distinctive enough and it's misattributed to a bigger competitor. So the concept of being able to pinpoint exposure and outcomes is not as simple as mm. most people think. And, and I think that's what frustrates me a little in our industry. You know, they're always looking for, I have to say, Dave, if someone actually asks me one more time, is attention even important? I might sort of punch them in the face. But when someone asks me that, um, they sort of say, show me proof. Show mm. me that if, if I need someone to pay attention, it's hard to prove that because there are so many other factors other than exposure. What I can prove with attention metrics is when someone's been you know has literally looked at it or not i mean that's that's about the best i can do so it is always hard because you know moving the needle on an actual sale has a lot to do with your competitors Mm. and a lot to do with your physical physical availability it has a lot to do with your branding there's so many things so it's complicated Uh, mental availability, right? There's a lot, a lot of talk about that, and it, it, mental availability is probably correctly and widely accepted as 
an acceptable proxy, right, for, well, for advertising success and, and, and many things. So, but but it's not the same as, as brand tracking. You pointed out, it's, mental availability is not the same thing as, as brand tracking or awareness or consideration. So how do you go about measuring mental availability at scale? Well, again, the the person behind this methodology is Professor Johnny Romaniuk, so not my area. We mm. just use the principles because it is best in class for long-term brand mm. impact. So short-term brand impact is what we use for this virtual store and stats. Long-term brand impact is mental availability. And basically... It's complicated, but basically the concept of, of mental availability is there's a competitor set. So if you think about you know insurance, for example, who sits in that insurance category and what you need to understand is um, across a certain set of category entry points, so at a certain point in time, does how many people and how many category entry points do they think of you versus your competitors? So, for example, let's use an example. So if you were going to the beach and you were sort of asked, you know, what soft drink do you think of at the beach? You might think of Pepsi. I might think of Coke. Someone else might think of Dr. Pepper. And But then there's also other situations with that particular – like when you're at the football or the yeah. soccer or whatever you call it um, – what soft drink do you think of? So depending on the category entry points, so it's how many people across how many category entry points against your competitors right. that gives you this mental market share, if you like. And what is well known, and we see it even in our own data, and we've done it for years, is that mental availability or mental market share um, is directly related and very strongly related to market share change. So if your mental availability decreases, so your mental market share decreases, your market share will likely follow. So a big piece of the work for us is um, to sort of understand what low attention platforms and high attention platforms, the impact that that has on this capacity to either maintain or even grow your mental availability. And certainly we see you know, there is definitely a risk, and this is something that I was in Can a couple of weeks or a few weeks ago talking on stage about, we see that low attention platforms not only don't maintain your mental availability, but it's likely that it will decline mm-hmm. and therefore your those those sales and that mental share will go to your bigger competitor. So we've used that for years as well because it's it's a definition around long-term brand impact. How important is the, the editorial, the quality of editorial and, or, or, or the context in which an ad appears? Because that, that would be good yeah. news for publishers who've been really hammered by, you know, by the, uh, Google's Play Network and Facebook. Look, there's lots of questions within that question. The first piece is context does matter. So we see that. And the reason why it matters is because we talked about this difference um, between passive and active. So if you're reading something which technically you're not looking at the ad, you're still looking at it passively, right? Mm. So that's when passive attention kicks in. So if it's a better feed than another and you're actually interested in the content, then you're more likely to sort of glimpse down to see it actively, the ad, or that you do actually have a longer period of time to see passively what that brand is. So 
So we know that it is important. The problem with programmatic is that it doesn't often hit quality publishers and the, then you've got so much cl- – so it's kind of a combination. It's great to have a great – you know, all these magazines will probably be excited for me to say, oh, yes, context matters. Mm. But if you've got a highly cluttered format and it's got, you know, MREX popping in and – you know, late, um, you know, um, banners popping in and, you know, buy me by, it just, it turns you off. So it's, it's, it's more likely not going to actually do you any favors. So it's not as simple as just saying that, you know, every publisher is going to be able to claim that their content is valuable, but I do know that it does make a difference. Yeah. I mean, ad load is obviously, I mean, we've, we've all, we all know our own sites where, um, whoever in UX has decided I'm going to cram as many formats onto this one visit and um, one page impression as I can it's just horrible like I mean well, I, I mean, say you know, works we're not into sample of one but think about the time when and I do it myself when you want to read something but it's so offensive yeah. that you just go I can't even I don't even I don't want to read it that much mm. that I want to deal with what's being thrown in my face right now so, so procurement and auditors are our biggest enemy for change because their job is literally to get the lowest, common, cheapest inventory. What I am seeing, though, is, you know, we're calling that out and um, there are certain agencies in particular that are very focused on change, others a little slower, but it is absolutely moving towards that so and then couple that with the pressure that you get from brands and you think of the work that wfa is doing and you know there's a it is a hundred percent moving and changing i can see it okay well that's good that's good yeah (laughs) so that's exciting yeah because as as i say i mean i do think i'm bob hoffman was saying we're we're in an industry without principles when you compare to other industries and and there's a lot of truth in that you know even the fact as we talked about we we throw out the sound bites sometimes without understanding the nuance of of what we're talking about. So it's kind of like, well, yeah, just get me what what's the answer? What's the answer? And and, and missing the, the detail. So I and I just don't know why that happens in the industry so often that we live in a world where there is an abundance of, you know, evidence and and um, thought leadership in terms of this. And yeah, I I just worry that are enough young people coming into the industry reading this stuff? Are they up to speed? Is there, like, we don't have a, a standard curriculum, which I don't know how marketing is taught in schools. Yeah, and I, think I mean, just... my, yeah, look, to be honest, my job is to move on from, as it is, the books and give them tools. Mm-hmm. So when you give someone something that works, rather than trying to preach at them that it works, it can yeah. work. And that's kind of why the business has taken so long to make sure that we build out tools for young people not to have to worry about going back to school and learning it and that they just get given tools that work. Yeah, yeah. Karen was, again, one of those. She was brilliant. Um, and I love what she talks about, the attention. I, I, and I, I love the idea of trying to hold the industry to a higher standard rather than just clicks or impressions or views or reach that she's talking about in, engagement and talking about attention, which we've far greater ability to understand what drives attention and, and, and how important attention is and full attention versus kind of um, partial attention which 
kind of leads me into my last one because that's what Orlando Wood talks about. Some people got terribly excited when I told them Orlando Bloom <laughs> was coming on the podcast. Um, it was Orlando Wood, of course, the Chief Innovation now, Officer. Now, Kira, there you go. One. Yeah. <laughs> and you go, is it like Ryan Reynolds type of thing that he's in? No, I said no, it's a different fella altogether. Um, he was just so good. But System One are the guys who measure how impactful or effective kind of TV campaigns are um, and it's and it's a science it's, it's a really smart business and he he's kind of the smart guy in that business so um, but he's a great writer he's a great he's a great speaker as well his books Lemon and uh, Look Out they're you so you really liked that one wasn't it yeah, yeah yeah it was lovely it was, it's, it's such a beautifully produced book but it's, as you might expect um, it's only available in printed format but it's such a good book because what I love about it is it, it, it's kind of you don't even I don't think you even need to be in advertising to appreciate it it mm-hmm. talks about how um, after periods of kind of technological change or revolution and great change, whether it's industrial or the printing press, society kind of pivots and, and starts to look inwards. And, and it's all about the left brain versus right brain hemispheres and the dominance of and how at the moment we're kind of dangerously leaning, looking inwards. And you, you can see that with people in their phones looking down. But the kind of sidetrack is how art of the time reflects that. So it's just a really interesting book. And of course, it's all backed up with evidence from the all the campaigns that they've done. So, um, yeah, it, 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 if you haven't read the book, I would strongly advise anyone listening to check it out. It's a really good read. But, yeah, I'm not going to do the full episode justice in these clips, but have a listen to them anyway and see what you think. What he describes is that the left hemisphere is narrow in its attentional field and it it sort of abstracts things from their context, likes to break things down into smaller parts. Um, It is not uh, very good at understanding lived time. It sort of breaks things up, likes to fix things in moments in, you know, so that they're unchanging, likes things that are familiar. It likes things that are repeatable. Um, It uh, really sort of sees things as as right or wrong. It's not very good with ambiguity, not very good with uncertainty either. Um, and so it, it, uh, it, you know, things, things is quite dogmatic. It's quite uh, as often has an overly optimistic sense of the world as well. It can't understand space or time. It flattens things, abstracts things, and it, um, it can't yeah. understand music uh, either. Just very basic rhythm. So I talk about, uh, you know, Ian's theory, and I talk about then what the right hemisphere does. Is the right hemisphere presents the world to us in the first place. It's responsible for broad and vigilant attention. Um, for it's also better associated with episodic memory, putting things into, you know, uh, long-term memory, people, events, places, that sort of thing. Whereas the left hemisphere is more sort of associated with this semantic memory facts and figures in the public domain mm-hmm. and the right the right brain presents the world to us in the first place anything of interest it passes over to the left brain to sort of manipulate what it sees and, and do things with it but the right brain is um presencing it's broad and vigilant in its attention um it's responsible for sustained attention to for things that are just sort of slightly off stage if you like things that are um, you know, at the edge of our awareness is what it presents these things to us, makes us alert to these things. And it understands people, expressions, gestures, uh, everything in context. It understands, you know, contextual uh, space, if you like. And it understands, uh, I suppose, uh, uh, things that wrap around the words, the, the implicit 
it understands live time and space, um, movement, uh, understands music, um, understands humor. It, tell, it tells the difference between a joke and a lie. That's the right hemisphere. And also metaphor, because it can understand that two opposing thoughts could both be true at the same time. So so these are things that are important for metaphor and humor and, and actually for understanding anything, really. I mean, Ian mm. describes metaphor as, you know, a way of us understanding the world. You know, it, it, it immediately uh, presents something to us that in a very tangible, interesting way. And, and we can only learn by learning what other thing it's like, you know, what this thing is like. So. So those are the two hemispheres, mm. and um, and you know, as we'll probably come on to mention, you know, uh, I think at certain times in history, you get this sort of swing. Um, I think following technological leaps, I talk about this in the latest yeah. book in particular, towards habits of thinking that are more associated with the left hemisphere. Yes, you you, you get this sort of shift towards performance think as peter field uh, describes it away from advertising which builds mental availability puts things in long-term memory and helps that performance advertising work better so i think there's a cultural shift i think there's a as a um a change in our habits of thinking um and i think it's going to become ironically that you know brand building advertising i argue is going to become more important not less because in this digital world as brands move online you know they lose some of their real world mm. physical availability um and you need to make up for that <laughs> you know you need to create mental availability through your advertising and you you also in a in a you know a world where you know when any any brand in one country is competing with a brand the other side of the world because everything is now available kind of online well you a brand building advertising builds a kind of moat around your business to make sure that uh you know you sort of are seen as you've come first to mind first of all so you type the brand into google rather than another brand but also you know uh your uh you have something that you're perceived to have something that the other the other people don't. So that's the that's why I think it's going to become more important. And yet we're increasingly mm. doing the opposite. Yes, yes. Well, I, I mean, in Look Out, I, I describe two periods in history uh, as well as our own, where I think we've seen similar shifts towards this left brain dominance or, or this narrowing of attention. Um, drawing on Ian's work, but also others too. And, you know, the first one of these is the is the printing press. And I think you have to go back that far, really, to understand fully some of the changes we're seeing around us today in society and culture. And that was, you know, it was invented in the 1440s, but it took a while for it to take effect. So by about 1500, you know, there were all sorts of things being printed, and distributed um, not just the Bible, but you know the Malleus Maleficarum for identifying, spotting witches, and trying witches, tales of monstrous births and wondrous signs, tales of the apocalypse. You know, it must have been an awful kind of really disorientating, worrying time to have lived through. 
And, uh, you know, much like the, the fake news of today, actually, you know, no one quite knew what to believe, I guess. And old established orders were, you know, uh, were changing and, and new ideas were emerging. Um, but, you know, you get this you get this sort of in the towns and cities in particular where the professions were, people started to look down, you know, at their books and primers and in particular in churches obviously changed with the reformation but people started to uh, lock themselves off in their box pews look down at their bibles and primers uh, a new kind of solemnity started to take hold you know so they used to in the in the church you know the old church which we might call the catholic church now you know they were they were they would lower a dove down through a, a ghost hole in the ceiling every whits and you know and then pour water a bucket of water over the people below and, and this was in germany and and um you know the wettest person would be proclaimed the dove for the year you know and that was uh, there was a sort of sense of fun everyone's relatively comfortable with this mm. with this environment you know everyone sort of was relaxed in it that changed and people uh, people introduced pews into churches there was less freestanding rather than looking at the altar people were looking at the pulpit from where the word of god was proclaimed the word took on a huge importance in this period there was the stripping away of the sights the sounds the smells of the church the characters in the saints the whitewashing of walls um you know all of all of these things um are you know i think could be attributed to the left brain's preferences huge industrial expansion, urbanization, a sense that uh, community was perhaps being lost, uh, a, a rise in mental illness too. This is, I mean, this is the main period in which sort of schizophrenia, which has much in common with left brain dominance, uh, started to emerge. And you get the kind of the, the rhythms and componentiality, so, you know, of, of industry, starting to find their way i think into culture more broadly um and artists started to compete felt they had to compete with science um and they started to approach it a bit like a science so you know picasso for instance uh tried to sort of deconstruct it and uh, make it analytical you get these analytical theories of art starting to to, to um, dominate um, you get futurism with its rejection of all things to do with the past, a kind of a, an aggressive form of art. Yeah, really interesting stuff there, including the left brain versus right brain thinking. Uh, and it brings this right back, actually, to the first episode with Chenda uh, on long versus short term, mm. long term versus short term. So um, Orlando is a really, really smart and interesting guy. Mm. Uh, so what do we do for 2023? How do we get bigger, better? Can we do an event? Can we do some live recordings? We could do an event. We could do an event. We could ask our audience, you know, what they want more of for next year. What did they enjoy, maybe? What should we do more of? What should we do less of? More of me, less of you, I'm sure, <laughs> is what, what they'll say. Yeah, sure they will. <laughs> um, look, I mean, we've got a very targeted cohort of people in our industry that keep coming back to us. So I'd like to wish them all a very Merry Christmas and peaceful New Year. Yeah, me too, and and like I think as well, like you remember when when this started off, and it was a, a pitch to your MD at the time, and you know I don't think I don't know how long we thought it was going to go on or how really good it was going to be in terms of the guests that we had, um, 
but you know 85 episodes later and you know the feedback that we get is incredible I get lots of really great feedback from people and um, mostly in the industry you get, you get some people even from not even in Ireland connecting in with me and, yeah. and linking in with me so um, it's really served a purpose though because yeah. you know my objectives was relevance for the Irish Times people touching the brand you know, yeah. consuming the brand um, so so it's it's been great and, and it's been really enjoyable to do it and it's gotten better over time not just in terms of the guests even you know it just be, it becomes a bit easier to do I think I think that yeah. the early ones it was yeah I mean I wasn't used to doing it but yeah it, look it's been it's been a great a great success as far as as far as I'm concerned I know you guys are, are very happy very with it happy as well with you, yeah. so yeah. I, we won't give too many names away for next year but I'm excited about some of the people that we've already got lined up and where we can go so um yeah, same. I will echo your thoughts and wish everybody listening a very Merry Christmas and, and a better 23 than well, certainly what I had in 22. Hopefully it can only go up from here. So have a good one. Have a good one. And if you liked any of those clips that we played, why not listen back to the episodes in full? You'll find all of them, all 85 of them, by simply typing in Irish Times Inside Marketing into your search engine of choice. Um, big shout out to... Kira in marketing and to Andrea in, on sound who's about his missus is about to have a baby so um, it's all exciting times ahead for him and I hope he's listening also big thank you to our partners in Irish Times Media Solutions and to Mr. Rob Kinsley who works tirelessly to get me people who've written books and make my life more difficult as I have to read them so until New Year stay safe and happy Christmas The Inside Marketing Podcast Brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.